The following message is entitled, The Eternal Word, Part 9. This message was given during the morning service on February 5th, 2023, at the Eastside Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois, by Pastor John Stevens. Sermon is entitled, The Eternal Word. It continues to be the same sermon title for this first series of the Gospel of John. We're in John chapter 1, and the first series... The Wonder of Christ's Life Introduced, the series number one is from verses 1 to 18. Um, a reminder, as I said to the congregation, a reminder for those in listening to recording or on podcast, uh, I switch once again each Sunday. Uh, the first Sunday of the month, we're in John chapter 1. Last Sunday of the month, we're in a series on the marks of godliness in Titus 2. Middle Sundays of the month, we're learning what a local church is and how it's supposed to operate according to the Word of God from 1 Timothy 1. This is done by me purposely because I move through passages so slowly that I don't want us focusing for years just on one passage on Sunday mornings and uh, focusing uh, this way. You get three different sections of Scripture dealt with each month of the year. I will, as Randy had mentioned in Sunday school, I'll be teaching a Sunday school class, I think the next three Sundays uh, at 9.30. And in that series, I'm doing a topical series when I need to fill in for Randy on why we trust our Bibles. How can we trust it and what's the problem if we don't? So I will pick that up at 9.30 next Sunday. That will not be on recording, however. So the eternal word is Jesus Christ, and we're currently, as the note sheet says in the outline, looking at his deity, following your text of scripture as I read verses 1 to 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, all things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The stage is set here, as your note sheet says then, for Christ's introduction to humanity. He is the eternal God-man, and his divinity comes up first, the deity of Christ in verses 1 to 5. We've already looked at letter A, verses 1 and 2. Verse 1 is an in-depth discussion under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by John the Apostle, telling us that Jesus Christ is God, and the Word was God. We know the Word is Jesus because, as I've mentioned many times in this series, verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So only Jesus became human of the Godhead. That's why there is no salvation, just believing in God. Salvation must come, as the apostles pointed out in 1 John 1, salvation comes through their teaching and specifically comes through the person of Jesus Christ. And this is the discussion here. He's the center of the four Gospels, and his deity is described here first. Verse 2 tells us that he was always in existence and is. He was in the beginning with God. So he's God with God. There shows, that shows the unity and the uh, triune nature of the eternal God of the Bible. Three persons, one God. So Jesus was in the beginning with God the Father. Beginning refers to creation. He already was there. He was transcendent before creation. He always existed and always does. So Jesus manifests not only, as we'll see in verse 3 again this morning, 
the divine character qualities of being the divine creator, but he is eternal, as is the Father and the Holy Spirit in verse 2. Now, we're currently in a series in verse 3, the beginning, being life and light through the word. Those three words, being life and light, are mentioned in these verses. And so point number one on letter B that we're looking at, by way of review, is the beginning all came into being through the word. Look at verse 3, all things came into being through him, through Christ. All things came into being through him. Underneath that, the Greek says all things through him. That's the order of the Greek, all things through him. So him is the priority. Jesus is the priority of this. All things through him came into being. It's kind of reversed around and changed in the English New American Standard here. All things came into being through him. So through him is last in the English, but in the Greek, he comes second. First all things through him came into being. So all things through him, as your note sheet says. All things is panta, and it refers to all of creation. Uh, in the beginning, in verse 2, is referring to the beginning of creation. And so all things came into being. We know this doesn't refer to divinity or heaven. Heaven didn't come into being. God didn't come into being. Because of that key verb, which is come into being. And if you'll notice under come into being, I've given you a definition, emerged. Came into being is emerged. It's skinemai. And it's used three times here. In verse 3, all things came into being, number one, and apart from him, nothing came into being, number two, that has come into being, number three. And I listed for you in the going down, continuing down this note sheet, I listed for you under little letter A, half parentheses, it says, air mid end, air mid end, perf act end. What is that? That's the grammatical construction of the same came into being. And it's three times aorist middle, aorist middle, perfect active. This is extremely important. Underneath it, you can write down what that means. He himself did it. He himself did it. He always did it from past to the present. You can write that down. He himself did it. He himself did it. He always from past to present did it. That's how you interpret the grammatical construction of the same verb used three times. Came into being. The middle indicative twice shows intensity and personal ownership in this context. He himself did it twice. The perfect tense shows at a point in the time past he created everything and it continues. And of course that was in Genesis chapter 1. He created everything. Genesis 1 tells us also that um, all three members of the Trinity are involved in creation. But for the context of defending Christ as divine Savior... He is focused in on here as the creator. He created it, and everything is in place until today. Creation still exists. This planet will not be destroyed by global warming. Don't worry. Uh, I was reading an article this week that the extremes will continue. The polar vortex has been shifted on the North Pole, and because of that, we're going to get this wave of extremity, super cold, super hot, until we're all fried or frozen to death. So that's the good news that scientists are tell us. Your future is you will be fried or frozen, and no medium well in there at all, completely raw or completely burned. And so, uh, no, God created the universe, and he's the one that will destroy it. So don't worry about it. Okay, only pagans who don't believe in God think that way. Next in your note sheet again, 
Ginnemai came into being, just to help you to understand that, you can put next to that, Ginnemai came into being, you can write down in that little line, he made it happen. He made creation happen. And then next, by way of review, emerging from what to what, from nothing to something. Emerging from what to what, the answer is from nothing to something. Uh, Out of nothing, this is what came into being is, he produced creation. From nothing into something, technical term in the Latin is ex nihilo. Ex nihilo is out of nothing. He summarily created the universe. He created all matter, all things. I took to you at the end of the sermon last month on Communion Sunday to 2 Peter 1.4. We won't go there. Um, it's in your note sheet. The same word is used there as it says in your note sheet. The same verb appears as he became regarding fellowship. You became fellowshippers with the Holy Spirit. It speaks to an issue of you weren't and then you are. You weren't and then you are. That's very important. This is how this verb operates consistently throughout the New Testament. Something wasn't and then it is. Notice came into being is not used in verse 2 of John 1. It says he was always continuously in the beginning. It doesn't say in verse 2 that he came into being in the beginning. There was no beginning. There was no creation of Jesus Christ. Not his divinity. His humanity comes into being. Look at verse 14. Notice the same verb is used there in verse 14. The word, here it is. Not was flesh, but became. This is how we establish our theology of the person of Jesus Christ. The Bible does it for us. His divinity talked about in verses 1 and 2, always was. But as humanity, in verse 14, Ginnemai came into being. Of course, was conceived of the Virgin Mary. This is what we have to explain to unbelievers. You first spend your a tremendous amount of time, like we did on Friday, explaining our condition, and then you bring up the essence of who Jesus Christ is. This takes time You must spend a lot of time with unbelievers if they're willing to let you and explain who the person of Jesus Christ is. Fully, eternally God, who then became at a moment in history perfect humanity, fully human. And of course, verse 14 negates the heresy that he just appeared like human. It says he became flesh and dwelt among us. So that tells us that he was enfleshed in a fully human body just like yours and mine. It had limitations. He had to sleep. But his mind had no sin nature. He was perfect. His body wasn't perfect. He was in the essence of his internal being. So he would have to cut his hair and he'd have to bathe and he'd have to, you know, eat Okay, until he had his resurrected body. So he was fully human, fully human. At a moment in time, in verse 14, he became human. This is what we explained to unbelievers. And that raises a question, though, why did he have to become human? And then, of course, you go into the issue of what the Bible says, a righteous one dying for the unrighteous. Finally, what we finished off last time was letter E. I wrote the entire statement out, little letter E above the dotted line. Creation was a singular six-day event. That's what's being talked about in verse 3, creation. Not a long evolutionary process. Again, as I said earlier, destroying the heretical idea of theistic evolution as so many so-called evangelicals hold to today, they're heretics. 
We'll talk about how you can't say you're Bible-believing and believing in evolution at the same time. We'll talk about that coming up. Uh, because there are certain things that happen when you decide to abrogate the Bible on certain doctrines. It causes the entire house of Christianity to fall. Before we get to that, though, let's go to new material, letter F. Paul expressed the same came into being in two other places. Just to give you a flavor of this, Colossians chapter 1, go over there. Colossians chapter 1, this is new material. I only put a dotted line after it to distinguish the letters of the outline, which have become complex. Don't worry about the outline. That's more for me than for you. We go to Colossians chapter 1. Verse 15, again, Paul is trying to confront heresy about the person of Jesus Christ in Colossians 1. And uh, we find out in verse 13, to roll up to verse 16. Verse 13, Colossians 1.16, He, this is the person of Jesus Christ, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us, this is the Father actually being talked about, and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. So God is involved in the salvation process, rescuing us through the person of his son. In verse 14, in whom, the son now is the subject of verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Very important verse. It is in Christ alone. Many, many individuals say they believe in God. They go to hell. They can't be saved by believing in God alone. They must believe in the son. They must appropriate the son by faith. It says, in whom we, in whom we, verse 14. The Son is the subject of the sentence in verse 14. The beloved Son in whom we have redemption. That's being redeemed from the slave market of sin through the forgiveness of sins. We know from Luke 17, 1 to 3, that you achieve forgiveness only by repenting. Luke 17 is a hinge passage in the New Testament. Luke 17, 1 to 3 defines clearly that repentance is asking for forgiveness. So when it says in verse 14, we have redemption for the forgiveness of sins, one must ask forgiveness, one must repent to be saved. Now we come to the issue that's germane to what I'm talking about in John 1 verse 3, verse 15. And he is the image of the invisible God. Exact representation. He is a visual picture of divinity. The firstborn of all creation, supremacy, is referred to. Firstborn is referring to supremacy. Obviously, Adam was the first human. So this is referring to supremacy. Verse 16, for by him all things were created. There it is. Still the subject is Jesus, the beloved son in verse 13. By him all things were created. Created. A word that is much alike to ginemai and came into being. Kadidzo, and it refers to uh, uh, making something once and for all, um, building something from nothing, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, again, second time, have been created. Perfect tense in the past, middle indicative, he himself is the one who did this through him and for him. Everything was created for him. He is Lord. So through him shows that he's divine. For him, at the end of verse 16, shows that he's Lord. 
It's created for him. He is master over everything. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Verse 17, this is lordship. You can't be saved receiving him as savior alone. You must accept him for who he is. That is what? Kyrias, Jesus, and then Messiah, Christos. He is Lord Jesus Christ. You must receive him after repenting as who he is, God and Savior, Messiah. Fully human who died in your place for your sins, being executed for your sin and mine. And we go over to a second passage, Hebrews chapter 1. No greater chapter defines the divinity of Jesus Christ than Hebrews 1. This is where you go, and I've had many a Jehovah's Witness I've talked to that I've taken to Hebrews 1 to show that uh, Jesus is not Michael the Archangel. That's what Jehovah's Witness doctrine teaches. Um, but we find from Hebrews 1 that he's superior to the angels. So much for that in verse 4. And we also find out that he's absolute God if you go to Hebrews 1, verse 8. But of the Son, he says, the Father says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. There it is right there. Hebrews 1, 8 shows absolute divinity of Jesus Christ. But go back to verse 1. Hebrews 1, 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and many ways in these last days. What is that referring to? Well, he defines last days by saying, In these last days... The writer of Hebrews then places himself into the last days. Last days then refers to the church age. should write that above verse 2. Paul talks about the future end of the church days in 1 Timothy 4. He gives it a future tense. Even though he's in the last days, he refers to the prophetical end of the last days in 1 Timothy 4. In these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir, he the father, heir of all things, through whom also he made. Poyao, another verb. He made the world. Jesus is creator. Absolutely, ex nihilo, from nothing into something, he created. Back to John 1, verse 3. The New Testament then supports Exactly in the same way, even with two different verbs, this concept of coming into being. Jesus is all-powerful creator. He is the God Christ. He was willing to come and become a mere man and die on the cross for us. Now we go back to our outline, letter B with no parentheses after it. That letter B, where it says, and apart from him nothing came into being, connects back to letter A up at the top under point number one if you're confused. If you look at the outline back up at the top, you've got the deity of Christ and big letter A, the beginning. The word was God, big letter B, the beginning, being life and light through the word. Then point number one, back at the top, the beginning all came into being through the word. And then letter A, all things came into being through him. That letter A now is followed by letter B down at the bottom. Clear as a bell? Okay, yeah, I figured so. All right, so let's go back to verse 3, the second half of the verse. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. What John is doing, he's saying, all right, here's positive, here's negative. Positive and negative. And he's repeating himself purposely. All things came into being through him, that's positive. Now he goes negative. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. He is purposely, John the Apostle, driving this home with repetition because this doctrine of Christ was being attacked by pre-Gnostic behavior in the New Testament. And I'll tell you what that means later on. 
Later on means whenever I get to it. I don't quite know what later on means at this point. Yes, somewhere. It's hopefully during the church stage, unless we get raptured. Then if we get raptured, you can ask the Lord what Gnostic meant. Point number one, then, under letter B, the blanks. JTA, you know that stands for John the Apostle. Repeats the exact same thing he just said, only in the negative. Down at the bottom of your note sheet. John the Apostle repeats the exact same thing he just said, only in the negative. Why do we have to know all this? Well, the Spirit wrote this. I've had people at times say, you know, this is a waste of time. We've, we've got it. What's a waste of time? Holy Spirit wastes your time? Is that what you, we would say? Holy Spirit's wasting our time? If the Spirit of God wrote this through JTA and he says first the positive, then the negative, then the Spirit of God knows that we tend to mess with this, don't we? And the history of Christianity is messing with the doctrine of Christ. Christology is a wreck in evangelicalism today. Especially in his person and his works. So this is brilliant. He wants this quite clear, John the Apostle does. It is the person who produced all that there is. The person. Three times, Jesus brought it into being. So why is evangelicalism playing with evolution? Messing with the doctrine of Christ. Can a person be saved believing in evolution? No. I'll explain that later. This is brilliant. Now the Greek on the back side. I'm giving you word for word how the Greek reads into the English. Without him, notice him is first place for intensity. Without him came into being not even one thing that came into being. Sounds reminiscent of Romans. How this reads when Paul said there are none righteous, not even one. Why? Because we're going to make exceptions here. There are none righteous, but I am. Nope, not even one. Without him came into being not even one thing that came into being. Wait, 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 wait. Well, he started the process, but then other things came into being through evolutionary. Nope. It all in totality came into being. Boom. Write that under there. The Greek. Nothing came into being. Nothing evolved transitioned it all was absolutely created at the beginning boom one time six days the word of god refutes evolution theistic evolution as well but evangelicalism is full of the idea that we can make exceptions to god's word even where there aren't any this is the way it is christians fall into that trap and we'll talk about that later Without him came into being, not even one thing came into being. That means this one alone made every single thing. Write that under that Greek statement. This one alone made every single thing. These are his credentials. That's why I've entitled this series Communion Credentials. He has the credentials to die on the cross. He's creator. He's life giver. He's controlling death, circumstances, all matter, all history, everything. All by him, controlled by him. He's the one that became a man. He's the one that became a man. No exceptions. Again, look at that Greek. Without him came into being not 
even one thing. Evolution talks about how, falsely, how the world and the animal kingdom transitioned to, from lower to higher to new forms of life. This refutes that. There are no new forms of life. Either we believe the Bible, no exceptions, or we believe evolution. The worst possible scenario is mixing them both. So this raises the later. The later now comes into point three. Man looks for exceptions. To all divine rules, it is the nature of wickedness of man's heart to look for exception to all divine rules. So John the Apostle makes sure we are clear on this issue. Not even one. No exceptions. God knows how much we want exceptions to the rules. That's why it's repeated in verse 3. He's shouting, God is shouting through John the Apostle, through the scriptures at us, will you please stop? Darwin didn't have it. Theistic evolution, Ross, the American heretic Ross doesn't have it, who claims to be a born-again Christian. No, not... Not his brother. I'm not referring to Ross. It's the last name of a theologian, and just want to make sure we're clear on this. You know, Ross is, a, I don't know what his last first name is, but he's a theologian that promotes a theistic evolution from California. No, he doesn't have it either. Heretics. No exceptions. Please circle that in the Greek. Not even one thing. No but after that. No, but. Oh, he started the spark of life and then it evolved. So all the public schools are wrong, all the colleges are wrong, all the scientists are wrong, everyone's wrong. And they say we're idiots for believing this. No exceptions. The idea of exceptions is wicked. In fact, let me give you an example. And I'll conclude with this before we go into communion. Even believers love to take the absolutes of the Bible and create exceptions. I've run into this countless times in counseling. The Bible says this. Yeah, I know it says this, but. Got that? You hear that? Let's go to Malachi 2. Let me just give you what I came to my mind while I was preparing this. One of the great controversial areas. I bring this up because I had mentioned a few weeks ago that when I was quoting to you uh, in a, one of the other series, uh, Francis Schaeffer in his book, The Great Evangelical Disaster, I said, he said in 1984, two things have fallen. One is orthodoxy in one area and orthopraxy, doctrine and practice. And he said the two areas that have fallen in evangelicalism that have created the great evangelical disaster, number one, inerrancy has fallen. Theologians, by and large, don't believe the Bible's inerrant. And number two, that's orthodoxy. Orthopraxy, same practice. The doctrine of divorce and remarriage has fallen, destroying the family. He says there's no grounds for divorce and remarriage. This is what he was pointing out. We ignore the Bible on inerrancy and on divorce and remarriage. And the divorce and remarriage issue is probably the supreme classic example of an absolute command being abrogated by but, creating exceptions. Look at Malachi chapter 2. Condemning the apostate Israelites through Malachi, God says in verse 14, you say, what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. That's an absolute statement that cannot be abrogated by man. Remember what God said, what God has joined together, 
Who carries out divorce? Courts? Men? Men carry out divorce, not God. What God has joined together, let no... Is that an absolute statement? Okay. And this confirms it. Covenant is made by God. Verse 15. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. People who abrogate the covenant of marriage, they're not saved if they don't repent of that. And what did, they, and what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed from then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. How does one deal treacherously with one's spouse? He defines it in verse 16. For I hate divorce. And him who covers his garment with wrong. Is wrong okay? Are there exceptions? Is it okay to do wrong? Then why would it be okay to do divorce? Notice divorce and wrong are mentioned as absolutes. I hate divorce. And him who covers his garment with wrong. If it's okay and there are exceptions for divorce, it's okay to do wrong at times. See? See how we create exceptions? This is what we do. If God hates divorce, and yet he grants exceptions to it, then what other sins does God hate that we can commit? Does God hate liars? But it's okay to lie under certain circumstances, is it? Do you believe it's okay under certain circumstances to lie? Can you create a scenario where it would be okay? Could you put a butt in there on lying? Anyone have the courage to say, yeah, I think under certain circumstances it's okay to lie? Is it? Hmm. How about hypocrisy? Two-facedness. God hates hypocrisy, the Bible says in Proverbs. But under certain circumstances, it's okay to be a hypocrite. Circumstances dictate whether we can grant an exception and break the rule, right? So it's okay to be a hypocrite under certain circumstances. Is that right? Two-faced? You can be two-faced for Jesus. No. False doctrine. It's okay to, under certain circumstances, to teach false doctrine. God hates false teaching. Heretics go to hell, according to 2 Peter 2. False doctrine. It's okay, under certain circumstances, to be heretical. Teach something false that contradicts the Bible. How about Galatians 1? If anyone adds or subtracts from the gospel, let him be cursed. But there's exceptions. There are exceptions to the gospel. And teach another gospel under certain circumstances, right? Right? No. But when we come to divorce, every time I've run into someone who sees that absolute statement of verse 16, they flee to Matthew 18 in the infamous exception clause. Let me just ask you something. If God says he hates all divorce in verse 16 and he hates all wrong and there actually is an exception in Matthew 18, that doesn't speak to it's okay to get divorced during marriage. That speaks to God is trashed. He's just contradicted himself. If there are truly exceptions to this one, then I can lie under certain circumstances, be a hypocrite, bear false witness, and have a false gospel. Certain circumstances dictate when we can disobey the Bible. 
the wicked church that looks for exceptions. By the way, the exception clause is defined anyways by Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. Absolutely and categorically, by the way. He goes between his new revelation about divorce and marriage back to Christ. And he says, not I but God, not I but God. And when he says, not I but Christ, in 1 Corinthians 7, he defined the exception clause as absolutely no grounds for divorce and marriage. Paul defined what Christ meant. Hmm. Why do people want exceptions? Write it under number three. They want exceptions to legitimize their evil. That's it. They want exceptions to legitimize their evil. It always comes back to orthopraxy. When I've confronted people on this doctrine, like Francis Schaeffer did in 1984, I always get not back, well, here's what the Bible says. It's but always a practical issue, as I mentioned a few weeks ago. It always comes back to, but why would God assign me to a life of misery? Wait a minute. I thought we're learning on 1 Peter 1 that you were born into misery the minute you became a Christian. You are going to suffer. Just pick your poison. Oh, so God doesn't want a life of misery? Being alone is a curse? Let's curse all those then that are alone. Singles are cursed. Widows and widowers are accursed. And divorcees are accursed. Never to be happy until they marry or remarry. Is that what the Bible teaches? I thought the Bible taught us something like this. The joy of the Lord is my strength. But in a wicked day and age where Christians want exceptions, the exceptions make someone feel better. Gets them what they want. It's exactly what it is. The exceptions give me what I want. Therefore, theological evolution comes along and says, yes, yes, ex nihilo, six days, 24-hour increments, defined by the Hebrew in Genesis 1. Yes, 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 six days, day and night, day and night. Yeah, I understand, I understand, I understand, but, but. Okay. It's a wicked person that puts an exception into Genesis 1, and it's a wicked person that puts an exception into verse 16. It's a wicked person that puts false doctrine exceptions into 1 Timothy 4. It's a wicked person in Proverbs 6 that puts exceptions for lying. It's a wicked person who thinks they can be two-faced and still live for Jesus Christ. The church is full of wicked people who want exceptions to the rule. They want what they want. They don't care what the Bible says. So did evolution take place? No. The Bible says no. If a person is divorced, are they still married to that person? Yes. The covenant is aggravated by man, only by God. We don't want that. We don't want that at all. People left this church in years past because of orthodoxy, believing that the Bible is the word of God. No. People have left this church because they didn't like something that the Bible said they couldn't and they got angry over it. So number four in your note sheet, atheists come along and deny the existence of the very one who made them. Evolutionists do this as well. Atheists come along and deny the, the very existence of the very one who made them. No exceptions. 
Evolution cannot exist. It does not exist. Science is false. The word is true. Don't mix the two. If you want exceptions in anywhere with the absolute commands of God's word, then dump the whole thing. God is an impotent, contradicting, self-contradicting God. And there's a reason why divorce, remarriage, and errancy of the Bible go hand in hand. Because those who believe in exceptions for divorce and remarriage believe that that exception is in there because of a contradiction in the word of God. It is not a contradiction. And I could take you through Matthew 18 phrase by phrase and show you why there is no contradiction there either concerning divorce or marriage. God's word is absolute. It is true. We're not to worm out from underneath commands. When you do wrong, it is always wrong. You cannot deny creation and expect to be a born-again born Christian. By the way, one last thing this morning. If you dub creation... That's heresy. A person can't be saved. Why? If we dump six-day creation, and it's an evolutionary process, what other doctrines of Christianity fall just when you dump creation? No, what other doctrines fall? Not what sins crop up, but what doctrines fall? We'll go back to Genesis 1. If Genesis 1 never occurred, then like James Dotson taught for years and still does if he's still alive, I don't know if he is, that, uh, and I quote James Dobson, the Adam and Eve story is mythic, meant to teach moral principles. So you dump creation, you dump the Adam and Eve story, right? It's an evolutionary self-sustaining process. There's a spark of life that evolutionarily carries on. It has nothing to do with God. So there's no Adam and Eve. Boom. Original sin falls. Man is not depraved. He's not a sinner then, right? Without Adam and Eve falling, there is no sin, right? Okay, so you believe in evolution, even theistic evolution. Now you've dumped the very nature of man being sinners and going to hell. Oh, oh, wait, wait, wait. What else falls? Hell? Hell, because if you're not a sinner, why would you go to hell? Hmm? Yeah, why are we dying? Why are we dying if there's no sin? But as far as consequences, I'm referring to doctrines that fall. So the sinfulness of man falls. Hell falls. I was talking to someone who was listening to a Bible teacher on YouTube. And he teaches everything orthodox but one thing. Only one thing he disagrees with the Bible, and that's that there's no hell. If you dump hell, what else falls? You don't need a savior. Where are you saved from? And you're not a sinner. If you're not going to hell, there's no judgment. So when you dump hell, you dump salvation. You dump the cross because Christ died in vain, right? Because you don't need a savior if there's no hell. And if you don't need a savior, you're not a sinner. If you're not a sinner, then the creation story is dumped. Everything falls. You can't be saved if you don't believe in hell. John Stott, the Anglican fundamental teacher for decades at the end of his life in the 80s, declared that there is no hell. He was an apostate, never saved to begin with. He didn't lose his salvation. He was a fake all those years. All those books he wrote. You can be so orthodox in so many areas. One major doctrine kissed off and it destroys a whole house of cards. 
You can't just say, I believe in theistic evolution, but I believe in everything else. That's nonsense. So when James Dobson said that the mythic Adam story was mythic, what did that make him? Apostate. False teacher. A heretic. Well, yeah, because then what you have is no need for a hierarchy or an order. The creation story falls, so you don't have Eve as the helper of Adam. And then Paul comes along, and when you, when you dump divorce or remarriage, you don't have headship going on. You have exceptions to the rule of the family. Anything is possible. Everything falls. That's why the church today is trashed. Francis Schaeffer got it right. Never say but to the commands of God. Never look at your life as miserable and unjust. Therefore, the Bible needs to be corrected. You and I don't have that right. You don't have a right for happiness in me. We have a right for obedience. We're called to obey God regardless of happiness. And our joy is in Christ. We're not cursed based on our human relational system. We're cursed if we're sinners going to hell. Jesus saves widows and widowers, Jesus saves singles, and Jesus saves marrieds. And in Christ, all have joy when they walk with Christ. Not a message that too many in the church want to hear today, huh? Why our pews are empty. Dear Father, as we now bow our heads to take communion and the bread, we remind ourselves of something very important. This is only for believers and only for repentant believers. If you're not sure you're saved this morning, please do not partake of this cup and bread. If you're not repenting of sin daily, please do not partake. That's a walk of death. God will execute believers who mess with the communion table. Are you harboring sin in your heart? Resentments? Don't take this communion. If you can't repent of that and put it aside. Are you an exceptional believer? You believe in exceptions? For your life, you feel you've been dealt a bad hand. And though the Bible says this, but God understands and has exceptions for me, don't, please don't take communion if that's your lifestyle or belief. If you're not convicted of sin, don't partake of communion. If you think the elements are Jesus' body and blood on this table over here, that he's not in heaven, that he's transposed his blood and body down into these cups, please, that's Catholic heresy. That's not the Bible. Don't partake of communion if you think that these elements are the divine essence of Jesus. Catholics have to believe that because they need to continuously ingest Jesus with good works to keep themselves saved. So let's take some time, heads bowed, eyes closed, cup of the bread in your hand, a remembrance of Jesus, with heads bowed and eyes closed. I want you to listen with your eyes closed to what a Puritan said about Jesus' death on the cross. Listen carefully as you meditate on the wonder of your salvation. Christ's love made him willing to suffer for us. He suffered all the misery that our sin deserved. He who caused the vast fabric of heaven and earth to start out of nothing, King of kings and Lord of lords, 
was content to take upon himself the form of a slave. He was willing to be accounted as a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised of the people. He who was the object of eternal praises was out of love for us, reviled and slandered as a drunkard, a glutton, a blasphemer, a madman, and possessed with the devil. He in whose presence was fullness of joy was for the love of us, willing to become man's sorrow and acquainted with grief. This love made God willing to be made a curse, to be sold as a slave, and the Lord of life to die a base, accursed, and cruel death. There was no sorrow like your sorrow, no love like your love. Was it not enough, dearest Savior, that you were willing to pray and sigh and weep for us perishing wretches? Will you also bleed and die for the likes of us? Was it not enough that you were hated, slandered, blasphemed, buffeted, but you were also scourged, nailed, wounded, and crucified? Was it not enough to feel the cruelty of man? Would you also undergo the wrath of God? Jesus, was it not enough to die once, but to also taste the second death and suffer the pains of death in body and soul? Oh, the transcendent love of Christ. Heaven and earth are astonished at it. What tongue can express it? What heart can conceive it? The tongues, the thoughts of men and angels are far below it. Oh, the height and depth and breadth and length of the love of Christ. Our thoughts are swallowed up in this depth. And there we must be content till glory shall enable us to have no other employment but to praise, admire, and adore this love of Christ in heaven for eternity. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Jesus did this for the likes of us. What a glorious Savior. Have you asked his forgiveness of your sins today? Please do it now if you have not. Have you learned that you've been a sinner from the sermon today in areas you've never repented of? Then repent now. Have you been unwilling to obey the absolute truth of God until the sermon today? Then repent of that. When God commands his children, there are no exceptions. You hate sin, Lord. No exceptions. You hate wrong. No ex exceptions. You hate hypocrisy. No exceptions. You hate false doctrine. No exceptions. You hate divorce. No exceptions. May we repent. Heads bowed and eyes closed, quietness of your heart, honor the Lord in remembrance by partaking of the cup. Oh, the bread, excuse me. Father, next you shed your blood on the cross on our behalf. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. You went all the way, you bled out for us. What a Savior. What a Lord.
We honor you this morning in remembrance by taking the cup of juice and remembering you as our Savior who died for us. Let's partake together.